more than four centuries after his death, Akbar the Great, 1542-1605, still looms larger than life over Indian history. In spite of the thousands of pages that have been written about him, he remains a somewhat enigmatic and often controversial figure. A brief search on the internet will show that while the majority of commentators readily admit that he was a great man, he has his trenchant critics too from both sides of the political-religious spectrum. Many Muslims consider him a traitor to Islam, while right-wing Hindus often revile him as just another Muslim oppressor responsible for the death of many tens of thousands of their co-religionists. The truth, as always, is somewhere in the middle and much more complex than the simplistic stereotypes suggest. It is also elusive and will, regrettably, remain so, as it has become impossible to verify and reconcile the often conflicting accounts of his life. Durkalia, The Great Mughals and Their India Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to Season 9 of the Islamic History Podcast. This season, we are continuing our discussion of the Mughal Empire. This is Episode 9-1, Akbar's Administration. So in this episode, we are going to talk about Akbar's government, his administration, his bureaucracy, and how he managed this gigantic empire stretching across much of Southern Asia. So let's begin. Akbar divided his empire into 18 subas, or provinces. These were Delhi, Agra, Awadh, Allahabad, Ajmer, Gujarat, Bengal, Bihar, Orissa, Malwa, Sindh, Multan, Lahore, Kabul, Kashmir, Khandesh, Ahmadnagar, and Barar. Each province was ruled by a subadar, or governor, and each province was also divided into districts called sarkars. Each district was governed by a fauzdar or chief district officer, and the sarkars or these districts were further divided into pargana or rural counties. Akbar improved on and expanded the improvements made by Sher Shah Suri. If you're not familiar with who Sher Shah Suri was, he was the Afghan ruler who overthrew Humayun and briefly, well more than briefly, he ruled for like 15 years, but he briefly ruled over North India. Again, listen to season 8 if you want more information about Sher Shah Suri and his dynasty. Now some of these improvements that Akbar made over Sher Shah Suri's improvements were an improved postal system, a better communications and road network, some of which still exist today, by the way, and also a land revenue system. Speaking of land, Akbar's empire was divided into imperial lands and jagirs. The imperial lands were under Akbar's authority or under the emperor's authority. Taxes were collected from these lands by imperial agents, and then they went straight into the imperial treasury. Jagirs, however, were non-hereditary fiefs, non-hereditary feudal lands that were given to nobles, and these nobles were either Mansabdar or Jagirdar. A Jagirdar 
is a feudal lord. And honestly, they still exist today in the Indian subcontinent. However, a Mansabdar was a Mughal official and they may or may not have been a Jagadar. They could have been a feudal lord, but they may have just been a regular Mughal official. The Mansabdar's lands and titles were not hereditary. The lands could be transferred from him to somebody else in case perhaps he fell out of favor with the emperor. And when the Mansabdar died, when this Mughal official died, the lands reverted back to imperial control. Each noble's rank, or Mansab, was based on how many soldiers and cavalry he could maintain. For example, if a noble had 1,000 zat, that meant he had 1,000 infantry. And if he had 500 sawar, that meant he had 500 cavalry. Now, it did not necessarily have to be soldiers per se. It didn't mean that the only people that this man commanded or this noble commanded were only soldiers or military men because sometimes their zat or their infantry or the men under their authority might be artists or doctors or other professions. However, over time, zat did come to mean the noble salary and sawar came to mean the men that this noble could bring to war. These jagirs or non-hereditary fiefs allowed Akbar to give his nobles a salary in a way. So say for instance the jagir or the feudal land produced excess tax revenue, revenue above and beyond the nobles agreed upon salary. Then the excess of that went to the imperial treasury. But let's say there was a bad year or a bad crop harvest and it did not uh, produce enough tax revenue to cover the noble salary, then the imperial treasury was used to bridge the gap. This was a way for Akbar to keep the nobles pacified, loyal, and under control. Speaking of taxes, land taxes were a major part of the Mughal revenue system. Let's remember that this was an agricultural society. So the lands within the Mughal Empire was measured using a standard length called a jadib. Now jadib fluctuated over time, but it may have been between 1,500 to 6,000 square meters. In addition to its size, land was also classified based upon its productivity. So land could be classified as very fertile or as barren and anywhere in between along that spectrum. So they took the size of the land and the productivity or the fertility of the land and combined them to determine the taxes that were owed on that land. Another thing that Akbar did was switch from the lunar calendar to the solar calendar. Now, of course, we know as Muslims that the lunar calendar is preferred for religious reasons. But again, this was an agricultural society and crop harvests are based upon the sun, based upon the seasons that are based upon the sun. And so since taxes were based upon the crop harvest, well, the solar calendar was a better tool to track time for tax collection. Akbar also had a very strong government and administrative bureaucracy. So let's talk about some of the government offices under his administration. Every royal decree that Akbar gave was recorded, 
reproduced, and verified multiple times over. So this led to very thorough record-keeping and very strong accountability. However, this also led to lots of red tape and lots of bureaucracy. And when you have red tape and bureaucracy, then you have the opportunity for corruption. There were four primary imperial offices, and these existed at both the provincial level as well as the imperial level. Think of it sort of like if you're in the United States, at like the federal level and the state level. So there was the Duan, which was the finance ministry, Mir Bakshi, which was in control of the military, Mir Saman, which organized trade, and Sadr Akadi, which was the judicial and religious affairs ministry. There were other minor offices, and we'll run through them briefly right now. Muhtasib, which was the ombudsman. This person listened and reconciled complaints from the public. Mustafi, or the auditor general. Nasiri Buyutat, superintendent of the imperial workshop. Mushrif, the revenue secretary. Miri Bahri, head of the navy or admiral, so to speak. Miri Bar, the supreme commander of all forts. Korbegi, head of the imperial stables. Kawan Salar, the imperial chef. Wakai Nawis, head spy or master of whispers for you Game of Thrones fans. And finally, Kotswal, or the sheriff. These imperial officers could be paid through the Jagirs, that is, these non-hereditary fiefs, these non-hereditary feudal lands. They could be paid either through the Jagirs or through cash straight from the treasury. Now, in addition to Akbar's various offices and administrative offices, he also had some very competent advisors. What was called as the Nine Jewels or Noratain or Navaratnas. This was kind of like his cabinet, his closest advisors, the people who he depended on the most for making decisions. Let's run through them now. Number one, the top one, the top dog, one of his closest advisors was Abul Fadl ibn Mubarak. That was the Mughal prime minister. Abul Fadl was born in 1551. His brother, whose name was Faizi, was another one of Akbar's ministers, and we're going to talk about him in a few minutes. Abul Fadl and Faizi's father was an Islamic scholar, and he passed on his Islamic knowledge to his two sons. However, the father was also a Greek literature and philosophy scholar, and he passed that on to his sons as well. This additional knowledge, this knowledge of Greek philosophy, influenced the son's Islamic knowledge and the understanding of Islam. Abul Fadl was appointed to Akbar's court in 1575 by Akbar. Abul Fadl also had three wives, one Hindu, one Sunni, and one Shia. Abul Fadl's influence had a major impact on Akbar's religious thinking. Abul Fadl was critical so to speak, critical in leading Akbar astray from Islam. He influenced Akbar tremendously. Abu Fadl, however, did also write the Akbar Nama, or Akbar's biography, as well as another addendum or addition to the Akbar Nama called the Aini Akbari, or the Regulations of Akbar. 
Now, these books are historically valuable and very useful for understanding Akbar's life. But when you read them, you have to understand that you are reading Akbar's best friend or one of his best friends writing. That's somebody who wanted to please Akbar. So, so there's definitely a lot of bias in these books, but they are still pretty useful from, from a historical perspective. I'm going to read a short passage from Akbar Nama. And you can see just how, I don't know how to put it, but how flaky, how, maybe that's not a good word, how mystical Abul Fadl was. Now listen to this. Quote, The devotees of the yoga practice are of four classes. The first, called Pratama Kalpika, entering upon the course, is he who with firm resolve and steadfast foot enters upon this waste of mortification. The second, Madhubhumika, in the honey stage, is he who by mortification of the senses and right conduct effaces rust from the mirror of the heart to such degree that he can divine the reflections in another's mind and see whatever from its minuteness is imperceptible to others. The third, Prajnajyotis, illuminated, by happy fortune and zealous endeavor, subdues the organs of sense and the elements, and the far and the near, with reference to sight and hearing, become relatively the same to him, and he acquires power to create and destroy. The fourth, Atikranta Bhavaniya, attaining the highest dispassion, is one to whom the past becomes present. Unquote. So that's Abul Fadl. On to number two, Faizi, the second of Akbar's nine jewels. Faizi was Akbar's minister of education, and he was born in Agra in 1547. And along with his brother, Abul Fadl, he helped to send Akbar astray from Islam. Faizi was also a respected poet and became the official poet of Akbar's court. Faizi wrote hundreds of poems, and the famous book of poetry, Tabashir al-Subh, is a collection of his poems. In 1588, Faizi became the Sadr, or religious official, for the states of Agra, Kalanjar, and Kalpi. Number three, we have Raja Todar Mal, the finance minister. Raja Todar Mal was a Hindu born in 1500. He was initially appointed by Sher Shah Suri to build a fort in the Punjab. Again, listen to season 8 if you want to know more about Sher Shah Suri. When Akbar defeated the Suri dynasty, he placed Raja Todamal in charge of Agra, and from there, Raja Todamal eventually became governor of Gujarat. Raja Todamal was responsible for revamping and improving the Mughal Empire's uh, economic system. He brought in various financial and taxation innovations such as efficient land surveying systems, uh, standardized weights and measures, as well as revenue districts. In fact, some of his financial systems are still in use today. Number four was Raja Birabal. That was Akbar's foreign minister. Raja Birabal was born in 1528 to a Hindu Brahmin family, and he was very much experienced in poetry, literature, and music. In fact, he became very famous for his music and his poetry. 
But before Akbar, before he joined Akbar's court, he was a member of Raja Ramchandra's court. Raja Ramchandra, if the name sounds familiar, it may or may not, Raja Ramchandra was the Rajput ruler of what would eventually become the Rewa princely state and is now located in the modern Indian state of Madhya Pradesh. Raja Ramchandra fought against Akbar but eventually surrendered to him, and we discussed this in the previous season. Look for episode 8-15. Anyway, back to Raja Birbal. Raja Birbal joined Akbar's court somewhere between 1556 and 1562. He began as just a simple court poet, but, but he would eventually serve nearly three decades as one of Akbar's religious and military advisors. In fact, Raja Birbal and Akbar were very close friends, and it actually led to some rivalry and jealousy amongst the other members of Akbar's court. Raja Birbal was the only Hindu to convert to Akbar's, lack of a better phrase, made-up religion called Dinilahi. Raja Birbal met his end, however, when he led a military campaign into northwest India in 1586, where he was fatally wounded. Number five, Raja Man Singh. This was Akbar's chief of staff for the Mughal military. Raja Man Singh was born in 1550 to a Hindu family. Akbar was actually married to one of Raja Man Singh's aunts, and that might have been why Akbar appointed him to his court, perhaps trying to strengthen those family ties and keep these, these Rajputs uh, in his sphere of influence. Raja Man Singh's responsibility steadily grew over time, in 1589, he was in charge of 5,000 soldiers. However, by 1605, he was in charge of 7,000 soldiers. In fact, Raja Man Singh had the largest number of soldiers under his command for any man in the Mughal Empire who wasn't one of Akbar's sons. Interestingly, Akbar often referred to Raja Man Singh as his son. Raja Man Singh led the Mughal army against Rana Pratap at the Battle of Haldigat in 1576. And again, if you want to know more about that, go listen to Season 8, Episode 15. The sixth member of Akbar's Nine Jewels was Tansen, who was the court musician. He was a renowned singer, and he impressed Akbar with his service in the court of Raja Ramchandra, whom we just spoke about a few minutes ago. Tansen joined Akbar's court in 1562 when he was 60 years old, and he was given the title of Mian, which means learned man. Tansen was a major contributor to Hindustani classical music, mostly coming out of northern India. His compositions helped to develop several regional schools of music in northern India called Gorana. And he also wrote two books about music. Number seven was Kani Kanan Abdurrahim, Akbar's defense minister. Now that name sounds familiar, Kani Kanan Abdurrahim. That's because we spoke about him extensively in our series on Malik Ambar. That was done in the summer of 2022. Go back and listen to it if you want to know more about Abdurrahim's exploits in the Deccan fighting against Malik Ambar. Kani Khan and Abdurrahim, or just Abdurrahim, 
was a son of Byram Khan. Now that name sounds familiar. That was Akbar's former regent and his advisor before they had a falling out. Again, go listen to the previous season, episode 8-14, to know more about that falling out between Byram Khan and the young emperor Akbar. After Byram Khan died, Akbar married uh, Salima Sultan Begum. He brought her and her son, Abdurrahim, to his court. And then Akbar arranged a marriage between Abdurrahim and the daughter of a Mughal noble. And Abdurrahim wound up serving Akbar throughout much of the rest of his life and also served under Akbar's son, Jahangir. And there's going to be a lot of interesting discussion about Jahangir and Akbar in the coming episodes, inshallah. Just hold tight. That's going to be very, very interesting and very, very fun, inshallah. All right, on, on with the nine jewels. Number eight was Fakir Azioddin. This was Akbar's religious minister. We don't really know much about this one. Uh, he supposedly advised Akbar on religious affairs. The word Fakir means sage in Urdu, but that's re- really all I got about him. I don't have much more to say about him. And the ninth jewel was Mullah Do Piazza, the Minister of Home Affairs. He supposedly handled and managed internal security, especially the police force. However, some scholars believe this was a fake person, and he might even have been nothing more than a court jester. So that's Akbar's nine jewels, his closest advisors. All right, now on to what you really came here for, politics and warfare. Let's get into it. So Akbar launched several new campaigns in the late 1500s. But before we get into the campaigns themselves, we got to talk about the Safavids. The Safavids, those are the guys who ruled Persia. The Safavids were under a lot of pressure. They were under pressure for both the Ottomans to their west and the Uzbeks to their east. The Safavids in the previous years had already lost Baghdad and Tabriz to the Ottomans in 1534, when the Ottoman Empire was being led by Suleiman I, also known as Suleiman the Magnificent. This was especially harmful, especially brutal for the Safavids, because Tabriz was the Safavid former capital. However, the Ottomans were not able to hold on to Tabriz and eventually had to let it go, but they held on to Baghdad for the next 90 years. Now, there was still a a rivalry going on between the Safavids and the Uzbeks over control of eastern Persia and western Afghanistan. Understand, these lines that we have today didn't exist, exist back then. And if you want to know more about this rivalry, again, go back and listen to season eight. Anyway, the Uzbeks wound up capturing Herat, which is now in Afghanistan, as well as Sistan and Mashhad, both of which are in Persia, in 1587. These losses forced the Safavid ruler, Muhammad Kudabanda, to abdicate the throne in 1587. His son, Abbas I, became the new Safavid emperor. Now, with all this chaos going on, the Safavids losing cities and them fighting with the Uzbeks and emperors abdicating, Akbar took advantage of these situations and began to expand his empire. Now, let's talk about some of Akbar's campaigns, particularly in Pakistan, or what is now Pakistan. First, there's Sindh. In 1592, 
Kani Khan and Abdurrahim led a Mughal empire into Sindh, which is in Pakistan, of course. He defeated the ruler of Sindh, a man named Jani Beg, in two battles. Jani Beg then traveled to Lahore and personally submitted to Akbar. Akbar said, cool, you're my vassal now, and sent him back to rule Sindh as a subjugated ruler, as a vassal of the Mughal Empire. So with this victory, Akbar now ruled over Umar Khat, which was actually the land of his birth. Again, season 8 for more information about that. On to Baluchistan. Akbar sent an army to Baluchistan in 1595 and captured the fortress of Siwi in the Kirthar Mountains south of Kuwaita. And I hope I got those pronunciations correct. Forgive me if I didn't. I'm kind of new at this. Then on to Kandahar. The Persian ruler of Kandahar, the Safavid ruler of Kandahar, which is in Afghanistan, of course, was already worried about the Uzbeks coming in to invade. And when Akbar sent an expedition to Kandahar, the ruler quickly submitted to Akbar without even putting up a fight. He preferred to be under Akbar's authority than the Uzbek's authority. Much later on, I mean much, much later on, this is going to become uh, the center, the focus of a dispute between the Mughals and the Safavids, but we're not there just yet. However, with these conquests, Akbar now controlled most of Afghanistan, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and North India. The Safavids actually began to make a comeback around the same time as well. As we mentioned, the previous emperor had abdicated and his son Abbas I took over. Well, Safavid Emperor Shah Abbas I was a very dynamic and very competent ruler. He defeated or neutralized all of his internal rivals. Then he went and struck deals with the powerful clans in the West to pacify them and also act as a buffer against the Ottomans. Then he brought in a bunch of European military advisors to help him reorganize his army. And then he began building hundreds of cannons and hundreds of thousands of muskets. So while the Safavids were rising back to glory... The Uzbeks were in shambles. They were falling apart. The Uzbek uh, regime was known as the Bukhara Khanate. And the Bukhara Khanate was just falling apart from internal strife. Abdullah Khan, who was the Uzbek ruler of the Bukhara Khanate, was fighting a rebellion that was being led by his own son. With the Bukhara Khanate, with the Uzbeks, so wrapped up with fighting themselves, they were unable, they could not stop Shah Abbas I from retaking the lands that they had taken from him in eastern Persia and western Afghanistan. Abdullah Khan died in 1598 and his rebellious son succeeded him, but then the son was killed by the rebels as well and that brought the Shaybani dynasty to an end which had been begun by Shaybani Khan. And if that name sounds familiar, that's because that's Babur's old rival. And once again, as I mentioned many times before, if you want to know more, go back to season eight. Okay, so now let's get into a little bit of family drama with Akbar. Okay, now Akbar had three sons and at least three grandsons. 
His eldest son was named Selim. He was born in 1569, and we discussed his birth in episode 8-15. The next oldest son was Murad Mirza. Murad Mirza was born in 1570. And the youngest was Daniel, who was born in 1572. Prince Selim's wife gave birth to three sons. So these are now Akbar's grandsons. There was Khusro, born in 1587, Parvez, born in 1589, and Khuram, born in 1592. Remember these names. <laughs> Remember these names, because we're going to have a lot to say about Khusro and Khuram coming up later in this series, inshallah. The relationship between Akbar and his sons was strained, to say the least. Akbar had primarily lived in Lahore since he conquered Kashmir back in 1586. His sons, however, who would have been teenagers in 1586, remained in Agra. Akbar moved back to Agra in 1599 so he could manage the campaign in the Deccan, which had begun in the early 1590s. So by this time, 13 years had passed, and the sons that were teenagers were now adult men, and Akbar was disappointed in all three of them. All three of his sons were alcoholics. In fact, his second oldest son, Murad Mirza, wound up dying of alcohol poisoning in that same year, in 1599. His two other sons, Daniel and Selim, they didn't trust each other. The palace was full of schemes and plots and rumors as these two young men were preparing to go to war with each other as soon as Akbar hit the ground and was dead. They had lost most of their respect for their father because they hadn't seen him in so many years. They grew up without him. Here's an example of their disrespect, or at least Salim's disrespect for his father. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's going to be a lot more to come, inshallah. While Akbar was visiting Kashmir in 1589, he ordered Prince Salim to bring the harem to Kashmir. Remember, Akbar was living in, in Lahore, and he went to, I guess, vacation in Kashmir, and he ordered his son Salim to bring the harem, to bring his women. Okay, let's just be honest. He, he wanted his son to bring his women so Akbar could go on vacation with the women of his harem, all right? There's no other way to put it. Anyway, Salim decided that it was too dangerous. And so he disobeyed his father, left the harem behind, left the women behind, and arrived in Kashmir by himself with no women. This was not fun for Akbar, who wants to spend all this time on vacation with no women. So he had to go all the way back to Lahore. Akbar himself, the emperor, had to go back to Lahore and get the harem for himself. Now, he spoke about the Deccan campaign a few minutes ago. We're not going to get too deep into this because, first of all, I mentioned it a little bit in the previous season, um, in the last episode of Season 8, 8-16, but we also, once again, went to some really good depth into this uh, campaign in our Malik Ambar series. But we'll gloss over it so at least you're up to speed of what's going on. So Akbar used a succession crisis in Ahmed Nagar to, to justify or as an excuse to start moving into the Deccan. He sent his son Murad and Kanikanan to subdue the Deccan in 1594. 
Murad Mirza and Kani Kanan, however, they didn't really get along. They bickered and they couldn't really organize their efforts in this battle, in this fighting. Murad's alcoholism was also a hindrance and eventually Abdurrahim, Kani Kanan Abdurrahim and Murad Mirza wound up striking a very unsatisfactory peace deal with the Ahmadagar Sultanate. Akbar didn't like this deal, and so he sent Abu Fadl down there to replace Prince Murad in late 1598, and that's when Murad died. Murad died just a few days later from alcohol poisoning in early 1599. With his death, Akbar entered into a state of mourning and mourned his son for the next six months. So Murad died in early 1599. Akbar came out of mourning around July 1599, and then he led the army down to the Deccan himself. As he went down to the Deccan, he left his son, Prince Salim, in Agra and left him with orders to march into southern Rajputana to take over southern Rajputana, which is located in west-central India. Now, I told you these, these sons didn't have much respect for their father. Here's what Salim did. Salim initially acted as if he was going to obey his father. He set out with an army and headed west towards Mewar as if he's going to go and take over Rajputana. But here's what Prince Salim did. He turns back around, goes back to Agra, and raids the treasury. Remember, his father, the emperor, is on his way down to the Deccan. Akbar is in the Deccan. Prince Salim raids the imperial treasury and then heads east, not west, east towards Allahabad. He then dismissed, basically fired his father's officials and replaced them with his own officials and begins to mint coins in his name. So Prince Salim has, for all intents and purposes, basically staged a coup against his father. But it's really a minor coup. It's not a really, really big coup because he didn't take Agra. He took uh, Allahabad. Anyway, this is a messy situation. Akbar is stuck in the Deccan and quite frankly, he isn't doing too well down there either. And even though he had some successes down at the Deccan, he was not able to pacify all of the Deccan sultanates. And again, we discussed this in much more depth in the Malik Ambar series. We're going to come back to Salim and Akbar, inshallah, in the next episode. But for right now, I want to shift gears just a little bit and talk about the East India Company, the EIC. You're probably familiar with the East India Company as a British or English corporation, but the story actually starts with the Spanish Armada. In 1588, Spain was the most powerful nation in Europe. Spain attempted to invade England with this huge armada of 130 ships. However, due to England's exceptional navy, due to England's bad weather, and due to sickness, Spain was defeated. And with their defeat, this opened the door for other nations to get involved in the spice trade, especially to the East Indies. I'm going to read a quote from a book that helps to explain more about the birth, about this period of time that led to the East India Company. Quote, 
It is always a mistake to read history backwards. We know that the East India Company, EIC, eventually grew to control almost half the world's trade and become the most powerful corporation in history, as Edmund Burke famously put it, a state in the guise of a merchant. In retrospect, the rise of the company seems almost inevitable. But that was not how it looked in 1599, for at its founding, few enterprises could have seemed less sure of success. At that time, England was a relatively impoverished, largely agricultural country which had spent almost a century at war with itself over the most divisive subject of the time, religion. In the course of this, in what seemed to many of its wisest minds an act of willful self-harm, the English had unilaterally cut themselves off from the most powerful institution in Europe, so turning themselves in the eyes of many Europeans into something of a pariah nation. As a result, isolated from their baffled neighbors, the English were forced to scour the globe for new markets and commercial openings further afield. This they did with a piratical enthusiasm. William Dalrymple, The Anarchy, The Relentless Rise of the East India Company. Unquote. So the story of the EIC begins with the defeat of the Spanish Armada and continues with the Netherlands. The Netherlands had recently gained independence from Spain in 1579. And with this newfound freedom and independence, they began exploring overseas trade routes and networks. In 1598, the Dutch admiral, Jacob Cornelizoon, I hope I got that right, returned from a successful trade venture in Indonesia. Now, with the success of this venture, the Dutch really wanted to get into trading with Indonesia and with the East Indies, and so they tried to buy as many ships as they could. And the Dutch even tried to buy English ships to help further this expansion into the East Indies. Well, this completely insulted and angered the English that this small uh, Dutch nation, the Netherlands, would come to them for ships. And the English were like, well, shoot, we can do this ourselves. So they refused to sell the, the Dutch any ships, and they were determined to start a trade venture of their own into Asia. And with that, a joint stock company was formed. Now, joint stock companies were considered a much safer business venture than trying to go into these things alone. Overseas trade and shipping in this era, in the, in the 16th century, was very dangerous, very risky, and prohibitively expensive. So to spread the risks and the costs, it was better to bring in a lot of investors. And this had been done before. The East India Company is not the first example of this. In 1553, the English formed a company called the Muscovy Company that was meant to find a northern route to South Asia going through Russia. It didn't quite work out, but the idea was there. In 1592, they formed the Levant Company, which was meant to manage trade between England and the Ottoman Empire. And so with that... In September 1599, John Smythe, the auditor of London, gathered a group of London merchants and adventurers. 
The purpose of this was to petition Queen Elizabeth I to charter a British joint stock company so they could pursue trade with India. Most of the shares in this new company were owned by British merchants and aristocrats. However, Queen Elizabeth wasn't on, she wasn't really feeling it. She initially rejected their petition because she was in the middle of peace negotiations with the Spanish. And she didn't want this new idea, this new company to complicate the negotiation process between her and Spain. But over time, the negotiations dragged on, the Spanish didn't move fast enough, and Queen Elizabeth, uh, she started to become more receptive to the idea. And finally, she approved their petition in the following year, and the East India Company received its royal charter on December 31st, 1600. That's going to do it for this episode. Inshallah, in the next episode, we will discuss the early years of the East India Company. We will also discuss Akbar's death and the rise of his successor, Emperor Jahangir. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you're an Apple or Spotify user, open the app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you're listening on Podbean, become a patron in the Podbean app and you'll get access to all of our premium content. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. Our premium content includes a series on the life of Salahuddin, an ongoing series about the Umayyad dynasty, and one I think you'll really enjoy, our latest series on the Soviet-Afghan war. Altogether, that's well over 50 premium episodes. Before we go, I want to thank Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research on the Mughal Empire and his continued support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Stay tuned for a short clip from our series on the Soviet-Afghan War. And until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Afghanistan Season 1, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. This season, we are discussing the Soviet-Afghan War. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. The modern borders of Afghanistan are defined in 1880 during the reign of Abdurrahman Khan. Zahir Shah becomes king in 1933 and rules until he's overthrown by his cousin, Dawood Khan, in 1973. Dawood Khan is overthrown by the Soviet-backed PDPA in 1978. The PDPA's communist policies spark a rebellion in the countryside, 
culminating in brutal fighting in Herat. And with that, let's continue our discussion on the events that led to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. So let's begin by discussing the PDPA, the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, which was the Communist Party of Afghanistan. The PDPA was founded in 1965 when King Zahir Shah implemented a parliamentary system. We mentioned how he introduced a new constitution that would make him a constitutional monarch and bring a parliamentary system. But we also discussed that the downside of this parliamentary system allowed for the creation of political parties, and one of these parties was the Communist Party. Now, the PDPA was not popular with the people of Afghanistan. In fact, the PDPA had very little influence or sway or power outside of Kabul. Most Afghans really thought the government was weak and the government was to blame for even allowing this Communist Party to exist in a Muslim country. However, the PDPA, despite it not being popular with the people, it was still somewhat politically influential and strong due to its connection to the Soviet Union. The PDPA, its members, had actually learned how to successfully spread propaganda and what we now call fake news against their opponents allowing them to run smear campaigns against other Afghan politicians who didn't like the communists. Nortaraki, who would later lead a coup to overthrow Dawood Khan, was the PDPA's first general secretary. Nortaraki was a communist ideologue, and he made silly proclamations such as calling for the country's power to be with the working class and with the labor class of Afghanistan, but this was silly because most of Afghanistan was rural farmers. They were pastoralists, that is, people who, had, who herded sheep and cows and camels and goats and stuff like that. Afghanistan didn't have a significant working class. They didn't have this big industrial sector with, with a whole bunch of laborers working in the sweatshops where they were being oppressed by corporate overlords. That did not exist in Afghanistan. There was some industrialization in the major cities, but very, very little of it, and definitely not the majority of the people. As I mentioned, the PDPA was founded in 1965, and by 1967, they had already split into two different factions. We discussed their factions in the previous episode. Kalk, which means people, and Parchin, which means banner. Now, these two factions were mostly split along ethnic lines. The Kalk, that is the people faction, were mostly Pashtun, and Parchim, that is the banner or the flag faction, were the other ethnic groups in, Af in Afghanistan. And we're going to talk more about these ethnic groups later on in this episode, inshallah. Nur Taraki, who would later become the president of Afghanistan after overthrowing Dawood Khan, Nur Taraki was the leader of the Kalk faction of the PDPA, while a man named Babra Karmal was the leader of the Parcham faction of the PDPA. And as I mentioned, these two factions were mostly along ethnic lines, and Nur Taraki was Pashtun, 
And Barbara Carmel was most likely Tajik, but it's not quite sure exactly what he was. But he definitely, most likely, was not Pashtun. But nobody really knows. <laughs>